Hello, good day, and welcome to Party in China, Series 2, Episode 28. But first, let me plug another podcast. On the Mic with Mike Golden is not just another case of somebody talented who couldn't get their own show on mainstream media using a podcast to chat to his mates. No, 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 not at all. This is somebody talented who can't get his own show on mainstream media using a podcast to chat to me. Other people too, of course, but let them plug their own episodes. So that's On The Mic with Mike Goldman and Party Parslow. Out now on Apple Podcasts, the playlist formerly known as iTunes, or wherever you're listening to this. And so it came to pass that on the first morning of that year, I promptly arrived Riverside for some sightseeing, as arranged the night before with those horn-swoggling Yankees, who promptly arrived more than two hours later, as Sean had been unable to leave his filthy bed due to injudicious imbibing. I'd warned him when he'd switched from Guinness to Malibu and Cola to Tequila's Sunrise that young drinkers today, they won't listen, you know. They won't listen. I can't remember why I waited so long, but perhaps because it wasn't that bad. The sun was bright on the bund, if not warm. The sky was that light polluted grey which passes for blue in Shanghai. The river provided an ever-changing parade of varied vessels and people-watching was fun, as the cosmopolitan crowd was large but not ludicrous, like the last time I'd been there. However, there were two unfortunate incidents. After about an hour's wait, I was standing alone, considering whether to abandon the pair of slug-tards when three generations of Chinese manhood stopped in front of me. A man was arguing with his elderly father about which way to go, while each held the hand of his five or six-year-old son, who was staring at me in wonder. So I deduced they were tourists, as Shanghai kids see plenty of foreigners. Suddenly, both men agreed to head behind me, Each pulled the boy by an arm and marched quickly past on either side, slamming the child's forehead into my testicle. I staggered to a nearby low bench to recover, which was when a one-man street-washing device the size of a ride-on lawnmower snuck up behind me and gushed water beneath the bench, drenching me up to the knee. When I roared and turned, the operator grinned broadly, gave me a little wave, and rode away. Happy New Year. Welcome to Shanghai. My wet lower region and wounded nether regions seemed good reasons to continue waiting for my punctuality-deprived colleagues. And I was neither squelching nor speaking falsetto when they did eventually saunter up. Sean was surly and looked pale, but then again, he always was and did. The whole point of this rendezvous was to share the experience of the Bund sightseeing tunnel. 
For this oxymoronic activity, you stand in a cabin quite like a chairlift gondola and travel under the river through illuminated insanity and confusing cacophony on a journey purporting to be from the centre of the earth to the stars. It delights me because it epitomises my consistent incomprehension of the Chinese. Setting aside a natural why-did-the-chicken-cross-the-road desire to get to the other side, I understand nothing about it, but urge you to take the ride if you're ever there. Perhaps not if you're on the sort of medication which warns you not to operate heavy machinery. It might then be overwhelming. Even though, as Sean mumbled when we exited on the Pudong side, anyone selling drugs to passengers would make a <laughs> fortune. Our next stop was unscheduled, and prompted by the fact the Shanghai Insect Museum had no insects on display outside the lobby. Just a small, motionless alligator which I'm pretty sure was alive. The first exhibitions were also reptiles, and definitely alive. Snakes and frogs mainly. But the next room was full of small mammals. Rabbits, hamsters, mice, monkeys, and a mangy-looking possum. After that came birds, many, many birds, including a sulphur-crested cockatoo which raised his skull feathers in alarm when I said, G'day, mate. It probably didn't speak English and almost certainly had never even been to Australia. But it was nice for me to see a familiar face. A sign pointed downstairs to the rainforest room, which sounded promising but was in fact the cafeteria, with a mural of a rainforest completely covering one wall and featuring many animals, some appropriate, some wildly out of place, like Lassie, the movie star Collie, and out of proportion, like the tabby cat that was as tall as the man next to it. Emerging from this rainforest, we finally found the eponymous insects. Lots and lots of beetles, butterflies, bugs. Not all that fascinating, although the giant rhinoceros beetles were impressive and satisfyingly alien. Another section featured small statues of animals, entirely composed of tiny, shiny beetles glued together. Had they been for sale, I would have bought the kangaroo. It was appalling. When Sean and Jim sought hangover relief in a McDonald's, I excused myself to go shopping. Once again, I decided to try and locate the fabled factory outlet which sold giant-sized shoes and clothing, but once again, my path passed perilously close to Oscar's. And once again, my alcoholic constipation kicked in and I was completely unable to pass a pub. The next day's 7am bus got me back to Ganyu around 3 in the afternoon and I put my head into the school to say hello. 
only to be scolded by Summer for leaving town without telling anybody and not answering my phone after I'd left town without telling anybody. I explained that my phone battery had died and I'd left the charger in my apartment, which was true. But I left out the detail that it hadn't died until on the bus that morning. Summer had been trying to make contact so she could tell me to pack my bags and climb into the car of the principal of Aston Schools in Suzhou, who happened to be visiting and said that he'd take me off her hands. The idea that I'd blindly and obediently bugger off to wherever I was told annoyed me, and I pompously stated that I would travel to Zhuzhou, and I would inspect the school and the accommodation, and I would decide if I went there or not. As always, when I became outraged or angry, Summer simply smiled, nodded, and waited until I stopped ranting. She then showed me a map, and my destination was not the city to the south near Shanghai as I thought, after seeing the road signs only that morning. Those signs had said Suzhou, S-U-Z-H-O-U, but she was talking about Suzhou, X-U-Z-H-O-U, which is a city a couple of hours inland in the northwest corner of Jiangsu province. Now this was not good news. North meant colder, and west meant probably mountainous, so even colder. But on my next day off, I went to see how horrible Suzhou was travelling to Lianyonggang to catch the intercity train. I'd purchased a soft seat, the most luxurious option, above hard seat and standing only. But it was still too small, too crowded and too uncomfortable for a big, buffeted bloke. The seats were arranged in two facing pairs, and so close together my knees spent the entire three-hour journey jammed between two sets of strangers' bony knees, with three men squeezed onto the two seats opposite. One ignored me, one glared, and the other goggled. Two more men took turns to sit beside me. I had the window seat, but even when I jammed myself up against the wall, the width of my ass overflowed my allotted space, so they didn't have the option of sharing the half a seat that was left free. To pass the time, they competed to see which one could give me the dirtiest look when it was his turn to stand. To avoid all this enmity, I spent most of my time staring out the window even though there wasn't much interesting to stare at, with two exceptions. There was a warehouse, or maybe a factory, and the wall facing the railway tracks had been almost completely covered with the slogan, All You Need Is Love, in giant capital white letters. That was surprising, but what made it my turn to goggle was an entire village being used as a rubbish dump. The train slowed as we passed the village, or perhaps it was an outlying suburb, so I had plenty of time to work out what I was looking at. 
Every street, every alley, every doorway and window was packed with plastic bags of trash. At first, the riot of different colours made it seem to be decoration, maybe modern art. I even thought it might be a set for some sort of post-apocalyptic movie, but I saw no cameras, no lights, no humans for that matter. The only movement was trash blowing in the wind and scavenging dogs. Until just as we passed the northernmost buildings, I saw a couple of garbage trucks reversing up to add to the pile. In the end, I figured it was a condemned area, which was to be used as landfill after it had been completely clogged with refuse. Not long after that, the train arrived at Zhuzhou Station. I disembarked and was swept along by the hurrying crowd, up the steep stairs off the platform, along an overhead walkway, down more stairs, across a huge hall, down some more stairs, and along a tunnel. I didn't try and escape the flow as I prayed it might just be going in the right direction. And astoundingly, when I was disgorged from the confines of the tunnel into a wide open square, I spotted a woman waving to me and calling my name. A brightly coloured woman, from her dyed red hair to her shiny red patent leather boots, who was disappointingly named Amber. I was hoping for Ruby. But in every other aspect, she was a delight. Her English had been honed in the States, but her fashion sense, including big black-framed Clark Kent spectacles, was less easily sourced. She was a bit... Björk-looking, so maybe Iceland. Suzhou felt like Amber herself, welcoming, refreshing, cosmopolitan and fun. It was also very clean for a Chinese city, had a wider variety of stores and restaurants than Ganyu, including one which featured traditional local cuisine, which was where Amber took me for an early lunch. It was a bright and friendly eatery, but when I eyed the tiny bamboo stools and wondered how many I'd need under each buttock to feel secure, we were led instead to an extraordinary exhibit on a raised platform. It was sort of a cross between Santa's sleigh and Henry VIII's four-poster bed, with a table in it set between two thrones. Amber explained that it was the place of honour for bridal parties, so I chose to feel honoured, rather than ridiculous. The meal was marvellous. Each dish was delicious and completely new to me, including some sort of slow-cooked chicken with lotus root and some sweet chilli cabbage and lamb skewers that was so wonderful. They almost made me cry. They say the way to a man's heart is through his stomach and Zhuzhou was certainly seducing me. The seduction continued as we went for a stroll to the school, with Amber pointing out a variety of museums, art galleries, and a brand new cinema complex which featured foreign films, hooray. She also spoke of archeology span sites open to the public and a beautiful big lake 
which the city surrounds. Frozen over then, but I swiftly started planning to buy a skiff online and teach favoured students to sail come spring and summer. Maybe teach anyone to sail. Start a little business on the side, eh? All of these things were unexpected, but not as unexpected as our next stop, a lingerie boutique. When I saw where she was headed, I had slowed down, prepared to wait outside and give her some privacy, but Amber reappeared, took my arm and led me inside so she could solicit my opinion of various garments. If such tiny, frilly, frivolous items can be termed garments. She not only wanted my world-wise advice, she wanted an English lesson too. Pronunciation mainly, but also vocab. I remember the word bustier was new to her. The nouns for a couple of items did elude me, because I'm not much of a lingerie guy. When I was young, I just wanted to get all the woman's clothing off. Her nudity was my primary goal. But after several girlfriends who enjoyed wearing sexy underthings, I came to appreciate that approach too. After all, if two friends give you the same birthday present, you're going to be more grateful to the one who took the time and trouble to wrap it nicely. Yet, when we left the store, Amber had no purchases. But I had no doubt that she was going to be a fun woman to get to know. In the next episode of Party in China, my Zhuzhou seduction continues, but as Robbie Burns almost wrote, the best planned lays of mice and men often go awry. The quote is, of course, the best laid plans, but Robbie really wrote, the best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glare but I try not to let accuracy obfuscate funny stuff. I'm Party Parslow. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.